you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Haggai. Haggai. Little small book late in the Old Testament between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Haggai has a power-packed and quite practical message. The book of Haggai itself is pretty easy to outline, kind of some key themes sort of fall from the text. Haggai comes along at roughly the same time as Zechariah, and both Haggai and Zechariah are prophets called by God to encourage the people of Israel to persevere in the reconstruction of the temple. In Israel's history, the northern kingdom had fallen, and the southern kingdom was carried away into exile in Babylon and had now been freed to return under the leadership of men like Nehemiah and Ezra. They'd come back to the city of Jerusalem, and by the favor of God, through His great grace, they were able, in a very short span of time, to reconstruct the walls of the city, providing it with some fortification, some defense against enemy invasion, and things just went glorious, gloriously well in those early days. The foundation of the temple was laid. People began to invest in the reconstruction of their own personal homes. The city began to be repopulated again. It began, at least in some ways, to look like the old city of Jerusalem. Over the course of time, the priorities of the people shifted. Someone asked me before the service started tonight if this was just a, a, a hardness of heart, a turning away that had happened in the people of Israel. It wasn't as clear-cut as that. It's easy to not have a sense of urgency about the work of construction when you're living in paneled homes, as Haggai describes them. So with the reconstruction of personal residences, there was a diminished interest in investing in the reconstruction of the temple. But the whole reason God had brought the people of Israel to the city of Jerusalem was for the construction of this temple. And the whole reason God had released the people of Israel from their Babylonian captivity was for the reconstruction of this temple. It's hard for us because in our mind, at least we should be in our mind, so disconnected from a facility or a building in regards to our faith to really appreciate the significance of the temple's presence within the heart of the city of Jerusalem. Apart from the temple, there could be no suitable worship. God had prescribed for Israel what worship would look like. God had made prescription with regards to the sacrificial system and how he would be approached. God had made prescriptions with regards to the essential nature of the priesthood. And yet in the absence of the temple, there would be no priesthood, at least no functioning priesthood, because there could be no legitimate sacrificial system. Apart from the presence of this temple in the midst of Jerusalem, there would always be obstacles in worship for the people of Israel. They would approach the Lord on his terms, or they would not approach the Lord at all. And his terms included the construction of this temple, at least the presence of a tabernacle that would come to represent his manifest presence in the midst of the people of Israel. If you follow along in Old Testament history, even this temple is a shadow of the one that preceded it. But the temple of Solomon, the preceding temple, there were two temples in biblical history. There was the temple that Solomon built, and then what is referred to historically as the Second Temple. In fact, a period of the Second Temple's existence is referred to as the Second Temple Period. And the Second Temple was 
pale in comparison to the first. But that first temple is indicative of the significance of that temple's presence. When Solomon stood to pray before the people of Israel to dedicate the temple of the Lord in the midst of the holy city, the glory cloud of God descends in a profound way. And God inhabits that temple. Reading along in Ezekiel chapters 12 and following, there's this imagery that Ezekiel receives. He's given special insight into the mind and movement of God. And what's featured there is God literally getting up from the temple and leaving the temple and eventually leaving the city. God had abandoned the temple and God would abandon the city. But now, having sanctified through tribulation the people of Israel, he had called them back. And the promise of God was that at the reconstruction of the temple, he would once more inhabit that place. God would once more dwell in their midst. Jesus gets in his ministry the significance of the temple. He says, tear this building down and I'll build it back in three days marking a transition in the way God would find his place of presence in the midst of his people. No more do we meet with God in a building. We meet with God in the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is reflected in a myriad of ways in the teaching ministry of Jesus and in the messages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in this old dispensation, in this old covenant system, the temple was of critical importance to the people of Israel. Sixteen years have now passed since Nehemiah aided in the laying of the foundations of the temple. And the interest of the people in its reconstruction has significantly faded. So God sends Haggai and God sends Zechariah to remind the people of the urgency of, of this project. Zechariah is more addressing the idea that they believed it to be beyond their capacity. Zechariah reminds them, as we noted on Sunday morning, that the completion of the temple would happen not by human power or by human might, but by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Haggai is really more about a shift in priorities for the people. They had lost perspective. Their priorities had changed. They now lived in paneled houses. They were well satisfied. They were comfortable. But God would have them to make personal sacrifices to see this temple reconstructed. We're dealing just with two chapters, so we're going to read the bulk of Haggai tonight, but we'll read the book a message at a time. Again, there are four messages in the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 and verse number 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now we'll deal a little bit with some of this marker here in the first, two ver in the first verse before we're done tonight. It is sufficient for now that we would note that Zerubbabel is a descendant of Jehoiachin, who was the last king of Judah before the nation of Judah fell to the Babylonians. In other words, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. When 2 Kings closes and, and Judah is carried away captive into Babylon, it seems as though the Davidic line could come to an end. All you have left is Jehoiachin. 
and he's carried away in a pitiful state off as an exile into Babylon. And it feels like at the end of 2 Kings, all hope is lost. But God has preserved the line of David and Zerubbabel's governorship upon their return to the city of Jerusalem represents hope that God is still faithful in keeping the promise of 2 Samuel 7 that a king in the lineage of David would rule on the throne of Israel eternally. Verse 2, the Bible says, the Lord of hosts says this, these people say, the time hasn't come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be drunk. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber and build the house. Then I'll be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I've summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, olive oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and beast, and on all that your hand or all that your hands, rather, produce. This is, this is what's described in our passage here is, in my estimation, a, a, a fair illustration and description of the economy of God. You may understand economic principles. I like to try to understand them. I don't always understand them, but I do like to attempt at understanding what's happening in our market and in world markets. I'm fascinated by these things. So I like to sort of play around with these things. But as you might have guessed, often my assumptions prove to be wrong. Often my guesses are entirely incorrect. I don't understand all the ways that our economy operates or functions. But I got a pretty good handle on God's economy. God's economy does not operate according to the principles of our market or our world economy. In fact, God's economy works in a way that doesn't always square with basic math. God describes here a scenario in which you plant much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never enough to become drunk. You have clothes, but never enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this in your personal life or not, but my experience has always been that just when I grow a tad overly self-interested, the financial priorities of my life or priorities in other areas of my life become self-focused and not directed on the things of the kingdom, there is always diminished value that follows after. In other words, when I begin to think in terms of building personal or material wealth, it, it scarcely ever works out to serve my personal benefit. 
But in those seasons of life, when self-interest is not the ruling priority, and there's a real heart to make sacrifice for kingdom purposes, God is always pleased in those seasons to shower with blessings in such a way that my personal interests are often served. I mentioned to you in, in the beginning of our time as we prayed together about praying for the leadership of your church pastors and church leadership team with regards to the budgeting process. We have very real and pressing needs as a body, as I'm sure you're aware. So, you know, we spend, we spend a fair amount of time on a weekly basis trying to figure out how in the world we're going to do what we need to do with what we've got to do it with, you know? And usually, that's a space thing, right? Where are we going to put people? What are we going to do with all of these people? And I don't know the answers to those questions, but I'm confident that if we remain open-handed and sacrificial in our giving, not just as individuals, but collectively as a body, God will be faithful to meet the needs of our church and the individual component parts of our church. That's just a God's economy kind of thing. It's, it's probably easier for us to think about this in financial terms. God has been gracious to me. God has been gracious to my family. But there have been some times in our adult life and in our married life together when we literally live from God's hand to our mouth. The, the first church I pastored, and I tell this story I'm not trying to foster sympathy. I, I, there are times when I look to those days and I think, man, those days were really, really good days. The first church, and, and I, I'm not old enough to have been a pastor like in the dark ages, right? And, and, and I've, if I never pastored in a, in a year that didn't begin with a two, right? I'm not, I'm not that old. And I made $20,500 when I started. The grand total of $22,500 when, I, when God called me to leave there and, and to go to another ministry. We had Trey while we were there. I got a, I, it dawned on me this week, I have a child for every church I've pastored. We got Trey at Wake Forest, and we got Hunter at, uh, at First Baptist in Matheson, and we got Bo here at Longview Point. And I don't intend to have any more children, and I don't intend to have any more churches. I'll just have you know. And, and so we had Trey... And, uh, and I was a seminary student, and my wife was in nursing school. And, and I'm telling you, you ain't been broke till you broke and you hungry. <laughs> and there were times in that season of our life when the math did not add up, and yet God always provided. It's, a, it's God's economy. It's, it's two fish, or it's five fish and two loaves. It's just the way God works. And what this passage is inviting the people of Israel to do in Haggai's day is to see how the kingdom's economy operates. That when you remain open-handed and giving sacrificially for kingdom stuff, the same open hands function, the same open hands that function to give away function to receive as God pours out his blessing in remarkable ways. They had all that they needed in terms of personal residence, the needs of their family. They were living fairly comfortable lives, and yet they had put on the back burner the interest of the reconstruction of the temple. We might state it in our terms, they had put on the back burner, given their level of comfort, they had made secondary 
the priority of kingdom advancement. And I would have you to know tonight as we make application of this principle to our current context, that if you will give sacrificially with open hands, those same open hands will operate to receive the lavish blessing of God. But just as soon as we begin to squeeze down on material possessions and financial wealth, those same hands that function to squeeze down on what we have stand to miss the outpouring of God's favor and blessing in such remarkable ways. This is not a prosperity gospel message or an invitation that you would do as the televangelist says, sow a seed into some ministry. I don't care, frankly, where you give it. I just think you ought to give it. And all of our life ought to be reflective of this kind of kingdom priority that elevates the interest of others, the needs of the kingdom, and the advancement of the name of Jesus and all the world above our personal interest, above our personal comforts. And I'm just warning you that if you choose to seize hold of, to grasp tightly what God has entrusted to your stewardship, your experience will parallel that of those in Haggai's day. You'll have clothes, but never enough to be warm. You'll have drink, but never enough to be drunk, which would never be suitable for a good bunch of Baptists in the first place. You'll have food, but never enough to be satisfied. It just never works out in God's economy that we would cleave to our stuff, failing to prioritize the advancement of his kingdom in all the world. This is the invitation of Haggai in this first message. The people had said the time hasn't come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. They were looking down the road. When we shore up certain areas of our life, then we'll be ready to give. Then we'll be ready to move. Then we'll be ready to do. It's just not time, they said. And the response of God was a rhetorical question. Is it time then that you would dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? He'd called them to some perspective. There are times when you, know, you see a, a chintzy Lottie Moon offering goal or a congregation of people who are greedy with what God has entrusted to them or closed-handed to the community around them. And they'll insist we just don't have enough right now. There are certain things here we just need to prioritize over actual ministry at the moment so that down the road we'll be able to do the ministry he's called us to. And then you look across the parking lot and the sum total of the value of the vehicles parked outside those church buildings is in excess of tens of millions of dollars. And you got to wonder where the kingdom priority really is. It makes sense mathematically. If basic accounting was the driving factor in the building of our personal and collective budgets, it would be a breeze. But things don't always work out mathematically in the economy of God. And Haggai 1 is a reminder to us of just this kingdom principle. The second message begins in chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says here, on the 21st day, first day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? 
Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of hosts. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of hosts says this, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of hosts. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Now, there are certain times when preachers have a tendency to make more of an Old Testament passage than they ought to. Sometimes it's said in jest in preacher circles that brother A or brother B can find Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament. It's kind of said as a, as a joke in jest that they're willing to take interpretive shortcuts to jump over good historical and grammatical examination of the Bible to get to a gospel-focused outcome. There's a, a healthy motivation in that, but sometimes it can represent a shortcoming in the preaching of certain Old Testament passages. This is a passage that, in my estimation, points directly to the significance of the coming of Jesus Christ. The glory of this temple will exceed, Haggai says, by the word of the Lord, the glory of the temple of Solomon. Now, if you know the, the history of the Old Testament, you know that at the conclusion of the construction of this temple, it was not overly impressive. In fact, the elders who were there for the dedication of the second temple wept because they remembered the way it used to be. There's a sense of embarrassment that this is the best we could muster after all these years of temple reconstruction. I don't remember if it was here or somewhere else. I've preached a lot of places in the past week or two weeks. But there's a, there's a passage that makes reference to 46 years of construction on the temple in the Gospel of John. When Jesus says, in fact, tear down this temple, I'll build it back in three days. The response of the people is, it took us 46 years. Now, they're not talking about 46 years of the actual building of the temple. They're talking about a 46-plus-year temple remodel project that was sanctioned and subsidized by Herod the Great. Herod was a terrible king, but he was a great politician. And he knew if he could win influence with the people, if he could win favor with the people, he could lead them far more effectively. And what better way to win favor or influence with the people than this great temple renovation project? That's what they're reflecting on in that instance. Herod is playing to a shared understanding among the people of Israel, even hundreds of years after the reconstruction of this temple, that it has never really lived up to the temple of Solomon in the first place. And so for 50 years, there is this great reconstruction, remodel project that's underway, subsidized along the way by the Roman Empire through their vassal king, Herod the Great. It just never was what so many had hoped it would wind up being. The only way that we can legitimately argue 
that this temple would exceed in its glory the temple of Solomon is by taking note of what would unfold historically within the walls of that temple. It would exceed the glory of, temple, of Solomon's temple, but not because of its gold or its silver or the cedars of Lebanon that constructed its walls, not its stonework or the great columns or pillars that lined its walls. It would exceed the glory of Solomon's temple because it would be in this temple, in this temple, that Jesus would declare of himself, I'm the light of the world. And it would be in this temple that Jesus would explain, I am the bread of life. It was in this temple that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, would gather the religious authorities and the scribes and instruct them as to the truth of God's word. It was in this temple that Jesus would disclose himself as the only begotten Son of God, glorifying the second temple in a way that by far exceeded the glory of Solomon's temple. It would serve as a prelude to the fullness of glory exhibited in the new temple. Not a building made with hands by brick and mortar, but the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that becomes a dwelling place for all who would entrust their soul by faith in him. The glory of the second will exceed the former. The glory of the new temple that is our Savior Jesus would exceed them all. This is, in essence, the message of, of Haggai in this second sermon. Now, I'm certain that there were bits of that that couldn't have been understood by those who heard Haggai bring this message. And I'm almost certain that Haggai couldn't have understood the significance of what he was saying as he preached before these people. But over the course of time, it would become clear that in spite of the shortcomings of this facility, it would be endowed with great glory as Jesus would walk in its midst. The third sermon begins in verse 10 of chapter 2. This is what the Bible says. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. This is what the Lord of hosts says. Ask the priests for a ruling. In other words, ask them to make a decision. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? What he's asking here is holiness communicable. When you think about this, and he'll explain this further in the text, but if something is unclean and it touches something that is clean, it makes the clean thing unclean. Uncleanness is communicable. You will catch it. You will get it. It's like a disease. But holiness is not that way. At least holiness as we know and experience in the here and now. The priest's answer to this question is no. Then Haggai asked in verse 13, if someone, def someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? And the priest answered, it becomes defiled. In other words, holiness is not communicable, but uncleanness, unholiness is. Then Haggai replied, so is this people, and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there, is defiled. Now reflect back from this day. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? 
When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, all the work of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Consider carefully from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is a God's economy thing again, right? You tried to withhold. You have contaminated yourself in your disobedience. And everything that you touch will now turn to mud. There's a day that's designated here as the day the people determined among themselves at the preaching of Haggai the prophet. They will now do what God has called them to do. And God says, put me to the test. And, and you just see if from this day forward, if the vine doesn't yield a harvest, if the seed of grain sown in the field doesn't itself yield a harvest. See if now, whereas before you came to the wine vat with 50 bushels and it turned to 25, see if your 50 won't turn to 100. See if God now won't bless in your obedience and your faithfulness to do as he's called you to do. See if God won't afford you the remarkable privilege of reaping as you sow in following after his counsel. He, in essence, invites them to put him to the test. If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time whatsoever, you have observed this in your personal experience. I've, I've shared with you um, about my granny and a little bit about my grandpa. As sweet and as sweet as my granny was, he was almost just as mean. I think he made up stuff for me to do just because he took delight in me working. Now, I'm not mad about it or sad about it, and frankly, it was good for me in the end. But sometimes it was just ridiculous. And we stayed at odds. We stayed at odds. We, stayed, we had a fight over a house cat one time. And I, I, I moved out and moved to New Orleans and worked on a riverboat for a year. That's, that's the only time in the latter part of my teenage years I wasn't with my granny. Just had to get away. Fight over a house cat. In fairness to me, I had just washed my truck. Cat was on my truck. When you're 18 and the cat's on your truck, it's an issue, right? And we just grew further and further apart when God saved me and, and he didn't know Jesus. We just grew further and further apart. It just was more and more difficult to be on, on the same page. And, you know, there would be times when he'd want to compel me to participate in something that I believed to lack integrity and I would be resistant to that. And there was, there was one particular episode where he felt as though he had opportunity to sort of take advantage of certain insurance adjuster and he did to the tune of about twelve hundred dollars but i refused to participate in it and in my childhood zeal as a new follower of jesus warned him this will not work out well for you and i kept a tally on the equipment that broke down on that property over the course of the next two weeks it came to total twenty four hundred dollars twice the amount he had swindled from his insurance company 
And I may have taken just a tad of delight in pointing out to him that perhaps had he not swindled his insurance company, these things wouldn't have happened. You can observe this in your own personal experience. There are times perhaps with what seem like justifiable motives, you withhold or misdirect your priorities and seek your personal interest over those of the kingdom. And it never works out. Your 50 always turns to 25. Your 100 always turns to 50. What you saw to hold in your hands always runs through like sand through the hourglass. You cannot hold on to the things of this world. But when we're glad to let them go, God is often glad to lavish us with grace and with favor. God invites the people of Haggai's day to test him in this reality. Just one more sermon from Haggai in verse 20 of chapter 2. Here the Bible says the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders, horses and their riders will fall each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, this is the declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Now, for those who might have missed it in the introduction to Haggai's prophecy, you know, if, you sort of, if we back away from this, the introduction that we are privileged to have in verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1 is not an introduction that would have been included, included in the actual preaching content of Haggai's message. This is a historical marker for those of us who would read the word of Haggai in the centuries that have followed his prophetic ministry. But every indication is that Haggai's ministry was a preaching ministry before it was ever a writing ministry. There are very few exceptions to that when it comes to the prophets. Haggai would write later the sermons, but for those gathered, they would hear these individually and separated from that historical marker in verse 1. The hint, the indicator, the note, Zerubbabel is now governor of the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, would perhaps not have been in the fore of their thought. Here, Haggai's sermon is focused exclusively, not on what the people need to do, not on the shortcomings of the people, but on what God intends to do, and it is directed specifically at Zerubbabel in the hearing of the people of Israel. A definite reminder of God's faithfulness in the keeping of the promises of David. It is as though here in the last sermon that Haggai preaches, in this declaration of the Lord specific to Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, that God is emphasizing that he is still at work among us in those ways long ago promised. Promises of God to Abraham are still real and relevant for the people of God. And the promises of God to Moses are still real and relevant for the people of God. And even the promises of God to David, hopes long since dashed, believed now to be a distant memory, 
it, it might not have registered with the people of Israel. That in the absence of a real throne, we refer to Zerubbabel as a governor here, and that is essentially the way he functions. But his leadership role in Jerusalem might have been lost for its significance on the people of Israel apart from this insight. Zerubbabel, you are my signet ring. The representation of my presence, my authority is represented in the city by the presence of Zerubbabel in the governorship of the city of Jerusalem. And this, of course, would not be the end. The promise that God makes concerning Zerubbabel here, at least by strong implication, intends that someone in Zerubbabel's line will likewise continue to serve as leader within the nation of Israel. The unfortunate reality is that often Israel missed the mark. In fact, Israel missed the mark the first time, which is what led to the abrupt halt of the throne or kingship in Israel. And it's what led to the temporarily dashed hopes of a nation that God would see through the promise he had made to David. Now for a season, faithfulness had been revived. And God would reaffirm his commitment that a king in the lineage of David would rule forever in Israel. But this season of faithfulness would likewise wane. Sometimes we have in our mind that Israel, after the exile and return to Jerusalem, just got their act together and everything went swimmingly beautiful for the next 400 years. But nothing could be further from the truth. Those 400 years of prophetic silence between the time of Malachi the prophet and the introduction of the Gospel of Matthew were fraught with disobedience and consistent moral failure on the part of the people of Israel. Now, they learned one lesson in their Babylonian captivity, and Israel has never dabbled with idolatry since. We have in our mind as American Christians sometimes that Israel is this place given to constant holiness. But you're just as likely to find an El San Francisco. There is gross immorality there as there is in virtually all of, well, not virtually, in all of the world. But Israel learned one lesson in their Babylonian captivity that they have never since forgotten. They have never yet given themselves over to idolatry. And I doubt you will scarcely ever find an idol within the boundaries of the nation of Israel, especially in the hands or the home of a Jew, even those who are no more than cultural Jews. The people of Israel would soon wax cold. They would drift and they would wane in their commitment to the things of God. But God would keep his promise. In the face of their unfaithfulness, God would remain faithful. Roughly 400 years after the preaching of Haggai the prophet, Jesus would make a triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem at the shouts of Hosanna to God in the highest. And they would tear down that temple in the symbolic sense, nailing his body to the cross, and our Savior would die on the tree. But three days later, just as he had promised, he would raise it up again. We now find our place in the presence of God, not in a temple in the ancient city of David, not in a building even like ours here, as though these function as an outpost for the presence of God, but in the body of our Savior Jesus. By grace and through faith, we have found our hiding place in the only begotten Son of God who bled and died for us. Indeed, the glory of the new temple exceeds that of the former two 
we might say.